Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Institute for Policy Innovation podcast. We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. Today is September 21st, 2023, and I'm joined in studio today by IPI's resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews. And Dr. Matthews, today we're going to talk about they don't make strikes like they used to. No, they don't. Remember, strikes used to be a really, really big deal. And even though the United Auto Workers strike is getting a lot of coverage, they're doing a kind of a rolling strike where they're taking some people out. Um, but a lot of the... Uh, yeah, they're calling it like a stand-up strike or something, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> so some are, uh, some are going, some are staying. They're using the three major U.S. car companies if you want to call Stellantis a major U.S. car company, but they're trying a different tactic there. But in addition, the writers group has been out since, I think, May or June. And, you know, here Hollywood goes on strike, the Writers Guild. You also have the actors going on strike to support them. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, Tom, I don't know that anybody really cares about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, if that strike goes on long enough, that will certainly start to impact people because as they're working through their backlog of content and then suddenly they realize, hey, where's the latest episode of thus and so or where's the next season of thus and so? You know, part of this is concerned about uh, artificial intelligence. They're wanting to make sure they're not replaced. But if you go on long enough, maybe the studios start using artificial intelligence <laughs> to to replace them. But, you know, I, I mean, I just I don't quite get it because so much of what comes out of Hollywood is bad and not worth watching. Uh, when you go on strike, it's not uh, it's just not that big a deal. But it, part of that has to do with numbers. So I'll give you I'll give our listeners some numbers here. Union membership is now about 10.1 percent of the of the workforce. And that's down from 10.3 percent in 2021. So that's that stands for about 14.3 million people are in unions. And overwhelmingly, it's a the uh, union membership is government workers. So they're, they, uh, the large majority of government workers tend to be in unions. And by government workers, that's uh, teachers, firefighters, police officers, along with federal, federal and state federal and, and state local employees, government right. employees. Exactly. So that's the, the large majority of them. So the only place union membership's really been growing has been in government. There's been a few increases in the private sector. But by and large, the private sector, I think, is only about 6 or 7% unionized. So if you go back, my understanding is if you go back into the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. uh, the share of, of U.S. workers that were unionized was actually in the 30 percent range. So it has really dropped dramatically since then over the past several decades. Right. It used to be a much bigger number. It's been dropping since really, I think they say about 1983 or so. It's just been on a gradual decline. And it's kind of... Um, it's kind of a bittersweet point to say that the only sector of uh, the unionized workforce is growing is the government sector, because, of course, government's always growing. And, you know, and, and of course, they uh, they push then for higher wages in the government, and that's taxpayer money. So it actually affects people in a yeah. lot of ways as well. Both of these strikes are at least partially in response to technology changes. Mm-hmm or anticipated disruptions from technology changes. Right, both artificial intelligence Mm -hmm. is a large uh, part of the factor in the writer's group. Right. And in addition, with the uh, 
United Auto Workers, their concern is as they're being forced by the federal government to move more and more towards electric vehicles, which are money losers, but they also take fewer people. Mm-hmm. It's uh, the, the car companies are saying we may be doing OK right now. But the Biden administration and perhaps a future Democratic administration is forcing us to transition to electric vehicles. We actually lose money on all those cars. And so that's a problem and it takes fewer workers. And so we really don't have the uh, we don't it, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to give great new contracts to people out there because there's going to be a real tightening in the car companies in the near future. It's really interesting that, as it turns out, it's actually simpler to build an electric car. It mm-hmm. doesn't take as many workers to build an electric car because they're simpler. You know, it's 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 basically a battery and an electric motor and some electric accessories, whereas on a normal car. You know, you've got to have a cooling system. You've got to have an alternator or generator. You've got well, just the motor, basically itself. just ex- controlled explosions going on and dealing with all the wear and tear that comes from that. So, and as you say, on the writer's side, the writers are worried about AI mm-hmm. taking the place of at least some writers. Uh, actors uh, themselves are worried about AI. They're worried about uh, their digital likenesses and their digital sure. appearances being able to be reproduced say, mm-hmm. long after they're dead with no royalties or payment or anything like that to their estate or whatever. Um, so it is interesting that it's, it's really, in addition to just inflation, just the fact that salaries are not keeping up with inflation, um, you've also got these technological disruptions that are maybe not maybe not causing problems right now, but are anticipated to be causing problems in the future. And, you know, with the with the auto workers, their demands are, in a sense, a throwback to the past, because not only do they want a 40 percent increase, but they also want to go back to defined benefit pensions that used to be a mainstay of uh, auto workers and other major industries, uh, manufacturers and so forth. But that's just not the case now. Most Companies, most private sector companies have transitioned to some type of 401k where the company provides a uh, some some type of match to whatever the person puts in. But that's so much better for the company long term because they know what their expenses are each year. So if there's a downturn, then if they just don't have the money, they may be provided they may provide a lower matching share for whatever the worker puts in. But the pension aspect, that's going away and yeah. they're trying to return to it. And and employers just don't want to do that. Well, an employee shouldn't want to do that either because, <laughs> you know, a defined contribution plan actually in the long run is almost certainly better for them than a defined benefits plan. Money belongs to you. I yep. know people who were part of, who worked for companies and they had a defined pension plan, a defined uh, benefits pension plan, and the company went under yep. or got bought out. Yep. And they essentially lost virtually all of the money in their that, pension plan. That's exactly what happened to my grandfather. He worked all his life in a manufacturing company. And about two years after he retired, the thing went under Mm -hmm. and they lost their entire retirement. There was nobody to bail them out. In addition, they're wanting more health care benefits and other things. So I I don't know what the car companies are going to be willing to allow uh, where they're going, because they've they've already provided what seems to me to be a pretty generous package. But it's uh, my guess is the car companies are not going to want to go to return to defined benefit packages. They may not want to expand health insurance much and some of the other benefits. And they don't want to give them a 32-hour work week, even though they're paying them for 40. We talked about the fact that um, 
at least part of the reason for both of these strikes is this anticipating you know changes in technology and everything. But the other factor really is inflation. And in fact, you know, back during the inflationary era of the 1970s and early 1980s, um, you heard a lot more about strikes. Hmm. Now, part of the reason you heard more about strikes is because more employers, more employees were parts of unions like you talked about. But the other reason for it is inflation, that, it, that there's a reason why unionized workers go on strike when inflation is a factor, because indeed, inflation eats away at your lifestyle and it only makes sense to a worker, duh, you know, if the price of everything has gone up, I need to make more money just to stay even. Uh, but in economics, this is actually a really important factor. This is what's called a wage price spiral. And what happens is you have you have inflation, which, of course, we would argue is government caused. Right. So you have inflation. Prices go up. So workers start demanding that their salaries increase because of that inflation. And so they get they either get voluntary salary increases or they're able to force it because of strikes and things like that. But then, of course, because everybody's income has just gone up, that that contributes toward more inflation. And mm-hmm. you get into this spiral where, you know, each is contributing, you know, the, the higher pay is contributing to more price inflation and the price inflation is contributing to higher more high demands for higher pay. And you just get into a really, really vicious cycle that, of course, it 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 drives and maintains inflation hanging around, but it's just bad for the overall economy, even if you're not one of those unionized workers. And let's talk a little bit about the unintended consequences here, because if you drive up wages, the automakers, I think the automakers, all of the things being equal, would prefer to keep to make cars here in America using American workers. However, if you drive up the, that cost so much, they either move to a right-to-work state where they may ha- be able to get some lower prices, or they may move to Mexico. China's probably out these days, but they may go to a place like Mexico where they could use workers there that will pay, that will charge less and be able to make these things for less money. And if you're losing money on the electric vehicles, that makes a certain amount of sense. So. You may end up by driving up the price of uh, your wages and the cost of uh, hiring an American worker. You may end up just opening the door for the American automakers to offshore this, close shore, near shore, what we sometimes call it, mm-hmm. uh, to, to a place that's going to charge them less to uh, make it the cars. And of course, we've already seen that happen. This is the whole reason why a lot of auto manufacturing plants. Uh, a couple decades ago, moved from unionized states to non-unionized states, like mm-hmm. Tennessee and South Carolina and places like that, um, because they could still have a skilled workforce, uh, but they didn't have to pay the union wages, which in some cases are double or triple what, you, what you'd have to pay a non-unionized worker in one of those non-unionized plants. Uh, and so you're right. You could see that happening again. You could, you could see the major U.S. auto manufacturers, you could see their sales decline because of higher prices. And their share of the auto market go down because of lower price competition from manufacturers that are not unionized. Or as you say, you could see more and more jobs again moving to, you know, moving to Canada or moving to Mexico or again, you know, South America and places like that where they can get lower wages. So ultimately, when you try to force a market to behave in a non-market way, uh, the, the market is going to respond in a rational way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the owners of that capital are going to actually try to find a place to deploy their capital where it's going to be more profitable than it has become. Now, the funny thing about the electric car part of this is that if you will recall, 
there was legislation that was passed by uh, Democratic-controlled Congress and, and signed by President Biden that provided all sorts of tax credits and things for electric vehicles, mm-hmm. both on the purchase of them and also on the production of them. But there were a lot of uh, requirements in there that the car be made in the United States. Right. So you've got the government mandating that these companies have to make electric cars. You've got the government mandating that those electric cars have to be made in this country. You've got government at least favoring the unionization. You get the Biden administration mm-hmm. to say they are the most he's the most union friendly president in American history. Uh, something's got to give. That, that that calculation is just not going to work. You're not going to be able to have people buying more expensive electric cars because they will be more expensive and workers, you know, three workers standing around doing nothing while two workers are building an electric car. It just, that's just not sustainable. That's not realistic. And there's going to be negative economic consequences from that. So it's a, it's a real problem. And, you know, from our standpoint, one of the tragedies here is the 2017 tax reform legislation which lowered the corporate income tax, which encouraged more businesses to come back to America because it made it more affordable to produce in America. Now, if you're stepping up with all these things that you're pointing out, you may make it so expensive to produce in America, you actually just drive these companies out. And I I find that just just a sad state of affairs because I would prefer them, all of the things being equal, I would prefer them being able to make cars here in the United States. Absolutely. No question about it. There's another angle to this uh, that is sort of related to sort of the current state of the conservative movement. And that is that until recently, conservatives and libertarians, free market types were were all pretty negative on unions. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things about what what's being called the new right or national conservatives is that they are much more pro-union. It's interesting because what they feel is that the system, the political system, has not been responsive enough to the needs and demands of low and middle income workers, mm-hmm. uh, particularly if they don't have a college education. And that one of the ways that you can that those kinds of workers can make a better living is by being a part of union and demanding higher wages. Mm-hmm. Now, I should say that there's nothing in there's nothing in conservative or free market ideology that is against unions per se. Right. Right. And you could even argue that unions have had some beneficial impact for workers and all that sort of thing. Uh, I, I think the real problem that we have in this country right now is that you literally have federal government agencies that are designed to essentially be free legal assistance for unions. You've got the National Labor Relations Board and, and things like that, where the government puts its thumb on the scale. So we don't just have a situation where, hey, if, we're, if workers want to get together as a group and unionize so that they can negotiate with their employer as a block, they ought to be free to do so. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any reason just to say as a matter of principle, no, that's wrong somehow. Uh, but what is wrong is when the government puts its thumb on the scales. There's also a power aspect here because it's not just unions saying, okay, we're unionized, we're going to negotiate with the employer, and we're going to come to some kind of agreement. Unions then push for uh, closed elections so that people don't know, uh, people will, excuse me, open elections so that people will know who you voted for. Exactly. They want to make sure that they, uh, they want to make sure that everybody in the company is in the union. 
rather than being able to have that as a choice that you uh, can or can't be. So it's, there's a, a, a power, uh, is it power grab? Is that the right word? But there's a sense in which they, don't, they aren't just happy with negotiations between the unions. They want to, in some ways, like a tyrant or an autocrat, they want to start determining how the elections are run, making sure that everybody's on board, or pay, or, and if you aren't on board, you pay a penalty for that. It's just, it's, it's not a good situation the way they've developed. And, and until recently, of course, the unions were an enormous source of political funding, mm-hmm. mostly for the Democratic Party. And so, if you were in a, if you were in a mandatory union company, if you were in a mandatory union shop, what you were being forced to do is pay part of your dues going toward political lobbying, right. even if it was the exact opposite of your own personal political views. Now, we've had some really important court cases that have basically made that illegal, that unions, you you can't be forced to do that. Mm-hmm. As, a, as a member of a union, you can't be forced to also contribute to political action and all that sort of thing. Although I strongly suspect a lot of that is still going on, yeah, although I, I perhaps at a, so. at a reduced level. So yes, what, what, what we have is in our unions in this country is frankly different than a lot of European countries where there is a more productive working partnership between the between the, the trade union and the employer. What we have is a situation here where the unions are heavily involved in politics. Uh, the federal government has been heavily involved in unionization, and you know, that's essentially you've got taxpayer dollars going to fund the National Labor Relations Board, which is, a, which is essentially a government agency designed to support unions. And, you know, you've had, especially in government work, you oftentimes have a person who is a union, a a head or a leader in the union who is paid by taxpayer dollars because he's working for the government. Mm -hmm. But his most of his tasks are being able to manage things with the union. You know, the other observation I think we ought to make is that just as there's nothing in principle objectionable about unionization, um, I think it's also fair to say that you and I are probably both more comfortable with private sector unions than public sector unions. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is something highly problematic, I think, about people who are supposed to be in a public service position unionizing so that they can demand, you know, all sorts of labor protections and all that sort of thing. Uh, I'm way more sympathetic to a bunch of coal miners or factory workers having a union than mid-level bureaucrats at, at the Department of Health and Human Services having a union. Which is why Franklin Delano Roosevelt opposed unionization among government workers, but John F. Kennedy actually opened the door for that. That's right, and did it through an executive order, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the first really really influential executive orders. And uh, I remember when Trump came to office and said he was going to undo a bunch of Obama's executive orders, I remember thinking, I, I've got a Kennedy executive order I'd like to see you, <laughs> see you undo if you could possibly do that. But uh, no great luck there. OK, so the strike is going on. It might only last a short. Well, when I say the strike, these two strikes are going on. We don't mm-hmm. know how long they're going to last. Uh, eventually, reality forces the sides to come together, get together. Um in Hollywood, there are non-unionized workers who are nonetheless out of work yes. because a show has been suspended. You know, I mean, if you're a if you're a carpenter building TV production sets or whatever, uh, and your TV production is shut down, you're not a writer. You're not part of that union. And both Drew Barrymore and Bill Maher, who have talk shows, 
uh, were go- had decided that they were going to start with their return on their talk show and get it going again, and they were just going to exclude those who were anybody who was in the union as part of the writers, and they mm-hmm. would just do it without the writers. Yeah. And then, of course, they got a lot of pressure yep. from others and essentially canceled the shows, and, and Drew Barrymore came out very uh, sort of tearfully apologizing because she just didn't understand the importance of this. And then Bill Maher said, well, I was just, I was going to do it because uh, I thought the talk, union talks were sort of stuck and wouldn't, uh, wouldn't get, it wouldn't end for a while, but it sounds like they're making some progress. So I'm going to hold off now too, which well, was I, a little, which I think was probably not entirely true, but I understand. I, I, I suspect that part of, part of uh, their motivation was actually good. I, I suspect, that they again, they've got employees mm-hmm. who are not working and right. not earning a living and not getting paid, and they're not writers. I think part of the idea was, you know, we could, geez, it's a talk show. How many writers do we need? You know, I think part of that was at least in sympathy. Well, let's at least get get people up and working again. But nope, not to be too much too much pressure. We we do know that eventually, you know, sides come together and negotiate. Uh, and that will happen. The only question is, we're not to the point yet on either of these strikes where one side has blinked yet. So somebody's somebody's got to blink first, and then we see what happens. Well, I just point out to, uh, regarding what you said, there is a a government shutdown looming, and there are news stories time and again about the federal government employees who will not have a paycheck and won't be able to pay their bills, and they're so concerned about that. Yep. But they don't seem to be that concerned in the media about these other employees who are not part of the Screenwriters Guild or actors, mm. and they aren't going to, they don't have a job, and they aren't getting a paycheck, and I don't see the media that concerned about that. Nope, nope, you don't see that at all. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. We would invite you to check out our website at ipi.org where you can sign up if you'd like to receive notices of all of our new podcasts, new content, and upcoming events. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You can also help to sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. 